0: So we're in an unstuck series, we've been talking about what it means to get unstuck and this morning I have a hunch that some of you in this room are stuck in guilt. You don't have to elbow the person next to you and you don't have to make a weird face about it, but, but from time to time we find ourselves in guilt. In fact, here's the deal, every single one of us at some point or another has been stuck in guilt. So how do we get Unstuck. How do we get, and what is the deal with guilt? Like, why, what is, is guilt something positive? Is guilt something negative? Well, I would say that it can be positive and it can be negative. The fact of feeling guilt is actually a positive thing. I was reading a book recently about modern-day leprosy. And are talking about really the deal with leprosy is that you, you don't feel pain anymore. I mean, it's just the things that you would never even think about, that these individuals will actually lose their sight because they don't, they, they forget to blink. You know, for us, if our eyes start getting, you know, if our, if our eyes start getting dry instinctively, without even thinking about it, we blink, right? To, to moisten our eyes, and with leprosy, you just don't, you stop blinking because you, you stop feeling the need to blink. And before long, they'll go blind. Listen, guilt can be a gift to us. Conviction is a, is a function of the Holy Spirit according to Jesus in the Gospel of John. The conviction, if we never feel guilt, if we never feel conviction, then then maybe we're engaged in things that, that are actually destroying ourselves and destroying the people around us. The Bible speaks of something called sin and we're gonna talk a lot about sin this morning and so in order to make sure that we're all on the same page and maybe I'm talking about sin and meaning one thing and you're sitting there hearing me talking about sin and thinking another thing, like what is sin? A lot of people talk about sin, a lot of churches talk about sin. What is sin? Sin at its essence is rebellion against God. It's thinking that I know better. It is putting myself above all else. It is listening to the serpent instead of listening to God. And it's serving myself instead of serving others and serving God. It is wrongdoing, but here's the part that we don't think about enough about sin. It is also the lack of rightdoing. And for followers of Jesus, the Holy Spirit convicts us out of, and here's what you need to get, he convicts us out of love. God doesn't convict us because he can't stand you, he doesn't convict you because he's in a bad mood. He loves you so much and he sees the destiny and the purpose that he has for you and as long as you and I are stuck in guilt and stuck in sin, we'll never step out and do the things that God has called us to do. I've seen it so many times in ministry, I've seen it in my life, that in those seasons when I'm stuck in guilt, stuck in sin, I'm not fully able to do what God has called me to do. Because I wanna hide, like Carrie talked about last week. Because getting stuck in guilt and stuck in sin leads to being stuck in shame and stuck in hiding. And so, what do we do? How do we get unstuck? Well, during this series, we've been looking at the life of David, and we've been looking at David's writings to help us to understand how we can get unstuck from all sorts of things, whether it's fear or whether it's shame, like we talked about last week. So how do we get unstuck from guilt? Well, we're going to be looking in 2 Samuel chapters 11 and chapter 12, and then eventually we're going to get into Psalm 51. Psalm 51. But if you haven't been around, maybe you don't know that much about David. I'm not going to be able to give you all the details this morning because of time, so I invite you to go to our website and listen to the last couple of sermons. But David, to, to just give you the cliff notes, David was a guy who was, he was a nobody as a youth. Nobody knew who he was. His dad forgot about, about him half the time. His brothers couldn't stand him. David David was a nobody, and yet God's hand was upon him. God saw something in David that nobody else saw, and God begins to elevate David, and he begins to have victories. And before you know it, he's commanding armies of thousands. And and then before you know it, the current king of Israel, a guy named Saul, becomes insanely jealous of David and tries to hunt him down. And David spends about ten years hiding from this from from King Saul, hiding in caves. And at some points he's alone. At some points he's surrounded by a motley crew of misfits. And and finally, after over a decade of this, and after a long long struggle David becomes king of Israel David is an incredible king in fact to this day if you would talk to someone on the streets of of Tel Aviv or in the streets of Jerusalem a a Jewish person you would say who is the greatest king in Israel's history they wouldn't even blink an eye they would say it was David 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 was the greatest king and when David became king, I mean, think about it. When you go from being a nobody to now being the king, like there is such a sense of appreciation. There's such a sense of gratitude. There's such a sense of awe that I can't believe that God's hand would be upon me and, and allow me to, to have all this. And what an incredible opportunity. And David begins to build a new capital city. There had never been a capital city in Israel. And so he begins to build and develop Jerusalem. And God's hand is upon him and that. And, and Jerusalem just prospers To this day, Jerusalem is known as the city of David. But something happens when we've had power. And when we've we've had power for a while, there's a temptation to begin to think that I deserve this. In fact, we live in a culture where we hear this all the time. You deserve. I deserve. I try to break that. In my mind, people will ask me, how are you doing, Ken? And, And usually my response is, I'm doing better than I deserve. Because I want to remind myself I don't deserve anything good in and of myself. And David reaches this point as king where now he's strutting around the streets of Jerusalem and he thinks he deserves everything that he's getting. He, he thinks he's owed this. And we pick up in 2 Samuel chapter 11 and the first verse tells us, Now it is spring when the kings went to battle, but David stayed in Jerusalem. David is, he's a, he's a Renaissance man before there was a Renaissance man, right? Before the Renaissance, David was the Renaissance man. He he is a warrior. He has fought thousands. He has taken on. He's had victories. He, he is a military strategist like no other. David was incredible in that way, but he was also an artist. He was a poet. He was a musician. He was a singer, and David is just incredible in that way, and he is supposed to go to, when, when his troops go to war, back in this culture, it wasn't like the culture now where we hide the president in the White House and make sure that they, they're not in danger, and the, I, don't, I don't oppose that. I think it's probably a good strategy. But back in that culture, like you went out to war with your troops. That's what you, was expected of you. David doesn't do that. He stays in Jerusalem where he's comfortable. So his troops, his commanders, his lieutenants, they're, they're all out fighting in war. And David is in Jerusalem, and quite honestly, I think David's getting a little bored. David's kind of like, oh, what is there left to do, right? So one, one day, David is up in Trump Tower, I mean, David Tower, and he's, he's looking down at his city, and maybe there's a bit of pride of I've done this, and he's just kind of looking around, and look at what I've done, look at what I've established, look at what I've built, and, and David notices, how could you not notice this? As a red-blooded male, he notices that there is a woman bathing. From his perch, high up in the sky, he can see all. Now, when I was growing up, people would be like, well, what kind of whore... Or what kind of, you know, whatever, that, that she's outside bathing. May I remind you this is 3,000 years ago before there was indoor plumbing? Like, this is how you bathe. She wasn't expecting that there was a perv watching her, like, while she's doing this, right? And so she's bathing, not to be exotic, not to be erotic. She, she's just doing what she does. And, and David sees her, and listen, guys, we all sometimes see something, and we know, whoa, okay, i got to avert my eyes. Instead of David going, oh, this is someone's daughter, this is someone's sister. Potentially this is someone's wife. David does something that so many are tempted to do. He continues to look. And he allows his imagination to go a little wild. And he calls one of his servants in and he goes, I want you to find out who, who is that woman. I need to know who she is. Bring me some information. And his servant comes back a little later and he says, well, this is Bathsheba. And Bathsheba is the daughter of blah, blah, blah. And oh, by the way, King David, she is the wife, she's the wife, King David, of Uriah the Hittite. Now David knew who Uriah the Hittite was. There's lists, there's several. I think there's three different lists in scripture that list out David's bodyguards. I mean, gives the whole list of names. And it's always an interesting list because you're kind of going through these names going, I don't care about any of these names. And then you see Uriah and you go, wait, I think I've heard of that name before. Uriah was one of his stinking bodyguards. Uriah is not home. He's out where all the other men are at. He's fighting for his king. He's out fighting in a battle for King David and for King David's fame. David goes, huh, go get her for me. I can imagine a servant going, didn't you hear what I just said? But when the king tells you to do something, you do it or you die. It's that kind of culture. He goes and He brings Bathsheba in and David has his way with Bathsheba. The king gets what the king wants. Bathsheba goes back home. Several weeks later, David gets an email, probably a text message at that point in the empire, and says, hey, uh, King David, just want you to know that I'm pregnant. By the way, my husband has been fighting in your war for the last several months. We both know who the father is. And David has one of those, oh crap, moments, right? What am I gonna do? So he thinks about it, and he gets a brilliant idea. Call the commander and get Uriah back home immediately. I want him in my palace as soon as possible. Get him here. So they bring Uriah in, he comes into the palace, and oh, Uriah, have I ever told you what a great bodyguard you are to me? Man, I love you. If I haven't told you lately, I love you. Hey, party it up tonight. It's all anything you want to eat. You can order anything off the menu. Whatever you want to drink, it's on me. And then I want you to go home and just enjoy a great night with your wife. Uriah goes, this all sounds great, but king, I don't want to partake in any of that because my band of brothers are out fighting right now and it would be disrespectful, it would dishonor them if I enjoyed all the luxuries of the palace while they're sacrificing their lives. And David goes, this is not going to be as easy as I thought it would be. He needs your eye to go home and have sex with his wife, so this whole thing can get covered up. If in case you weren't filling in all the blanks, <laughs> so he goes, ah, let's get let's get the guy plastered. So he just gives him the hard stuff. He goes, let's get him just absolutely plastered. We'll call an Uber. We'll send him home. He'll fall into the arms of his wife. No one will ever know. They call the Uber, they send Uriah home. He refuses to go to the bedroom and be with his wife because how could he sleep in a bed when all of his men are sleeping on the ground, sacrificing their lives? This guy is the definition of integrity. David goes, well, whatever, send him back. And send him back with a note. Uriah is going back to battle not knowing that there's a note connected with him to the commander and the note says this put Uriah in the front lines where the battle is at its fiercest and then order the other men to fall back he arranges for Uriah's murder Word comes back the next day. There would be newspaper accounts of who had been killed in battle over the last 24 hours. And and it's known that Uriah the Hittite has died. He was one of David's bodyguards. and, And David, oh, I can't believe my own bodyguard is dead. I will honor him by marrying his wife. He thinks he's figured it all out. He thinks he's so brilliant. He thinks nobody knows. And nobody does know. Nobody has a clue except for the servants in the house. But God has this way of unveiling things that we think are secret. (laughs) David has a friend named Nathan, and Nathan is a godly man. He's a man who's been used by God in the prophetic. And, And Nathan one day is given a, we call this in the New Testament, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, it's called a word of revelation knowledge where you're given, you're kind of downloaded information that you shouldn't know, but God gives you information for the purposes of the kingdom of God. And so Nathan is just minding his own business, and and God downloads this information about David, and and Nathan is David's friend. And God says, now that you know the details, you need to go confront David and tell him what he has done has not been hidden, and I know all about it. Can you imagine having that responsibility? (laughs) Can you imagine being Nathan? I mean the king can kill you if he's in a bad mood even if he is your friend. Nathan goes and he gets really creative. I don't have time to tell you all the details. If you really got to read the story is incredible in 2nd Samuel 11 and 12 and Nathan confronts David and David finally like awakens to conviction. Like conviction finally comes upon him and he finally begins to repent. And we have, we have a poem, we have a prayer that David wrote concerning his repentance. It doesn't sound much like a poem in our English, but in the Hebrew, it's incredible. And, and so we're gonna take the next few moments to read Psalm 51. In fact, Chuck Schauder is gonna read it for us. So let's watch the screen together.
1: Have mercy on me, O God, because of your unfailing love. Because of your great compassion, blot out the stain of my sins. Wash me clean from my guilt. Purify me from my sin. For I recognize my rebellion. It haunts me day and night. Against you and you alone have I sinned. I have done what is evil in your sight. You will be proved right in what you say and your judgment against me is just for i was a born sinner yes from the moment my mother conceived me but you desire honesty from the womb teaching me wisdom even there purify me from my sins and i will be clean wash me and i will be whiter than snow oh give me back my joy again You have broken me. Now let me rejoice. Don't keep looking at my sins. Remove the stain of my guilt. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a loyal spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence and don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and make me willing to obey you. Then I will teach your ways to rebels and they will return to you. Forgive me for shedding blood, O God who saves, that I will joyfully sing of your forgiveness. Unseal my lips, O Lord, that my mouth may praise you. You do not desire a sacrifice or I would offer one. You do not want a burnt offering. The sacrifice you desired is a broken spirit. You will not reject a broken and repentant heart, O God. Look with favor on Zion and help her. Rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will be pleased with sacrifices offered in the right spirit, with burnt offerings And whole burnt offerings then bulls will again be sacrificed on your altar
0: so from Psalm 51 we learned several lessons about how to get unstuck from guilt if you have your notes you can follow along with us we're going to kind of mow through some of this stuff number one recognize your sin is serious David had to come to the recognition that what he had done was a big deal. He says in Psalm 51, verses 3 through 5, For I recognize my shameful deeds. They haunt me day and night. Against you and you alone have I sinned. I have done what is evil in your sight. You will be proved right in what you say, and your judgment against me is just. For I was born a sinner, yes, from the moment my mother conceived me. Listen, so, sometimes we read this and we go, Against you and you alone have I sinned. He's sinned against all kinds of people. We, we, we understand that the root of our sin is sin against God, that there is a vertical nature to our sin. We don't talk about this much in culture, but there is, when, when, I, when I violate another person, when I hurt another person, I haven't just hurt them, I've also hurt God Himself. And so stop making excuses. Stop comparing yourself to other people well at least I'm not as bad and so and so at least I didn't do what they did. My sin isn't that bad. Don't minimize what you've done. Recognize that your sin is serious. Number two, ask God to remove your sin. He goes on in verses 9 through 10 of Psalm 51. He says, don't keep looking at my sins. Remove the stain of my guilt. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a loyal spirit within me. Ask God to remove your sin Now, here, here, here's the incredible thing is we can ask God to remove our sin because of what Jesus did on the cross Like David didn't have this recognition God had given him hints God had given him I believe visions of what was to come that his great 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 so, so many great grandson would would come to this earth and the descendant of David would actually be the means of salvation and rescue for all of humanity Jesus died on the cross, and as he died on the cross, he took upon himself our punishment. And so when we're asking God to remove our sin, he's doing that through the blood of Jesus, that we can be cleansed and we can be forgiven through Jesus, that God has made a way for our sins to be absolutely 100% forgiven, that Jesus paid the debt that we owe. So recognize that your sin is serious. Ask God to remove your sin. Number three, receive God's forgiveness. He says in verses seven and eight of Psalm 51, purify me from my sins and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Oh, give me back my joy again. You have broken me, now let me rejoice. You know, I think sometimes when we have been stuck in guilt, stuck in sin, we we, we know about God's grace, we know about God's forgiveness, but we mistakenly believe that because of our sin, because of our guilt, we are now relegated to some kind of eternal second-class status. And this isn't the way the kingdom of God works. That when we come to God repentant, when we ask God to forgive us, he does just that. And we can receive his forgiveness, that we are now clean, totally forgiven. Our past has no claim on us because God has made us new. Somebody in this room needs to understand that, to never forget it, to never doubt it. In fact, God spoke through the prophet Isaiah these words. This is so incredible. In Isaiah chapter one, verse 18, come now, let us argue this out. I love those words. It's like God saying, hey, you doubt what I'm doing? You doubt my ability to forgive you? You doubt my grace? Let's argue this out. Can you imagine having an argument with the creator of the universe? God says, Let's argue this out. No matter how deep the stain of your sins, I can what? I can remove it. I can make you as clean as freshly fallen snow. Even if you are stained as red as crimson, I can make you as white as wool. This is our God, this is His grace. This is his mercy toward you, this is how much he loves you. Now most of the time, in in church circles, we stop right here, and we say if you're stuck in guilt, if you're stuck in sin, just recognize your sin is serious, ask God to remove your sin, receive God's forgiveness, all right, let's pray. But here's what I've experienced, and maybe you've experienced this as well. Sometimes you do all these things, and yet you still feel guilt. You still, you still feel even conviction, and you wonder, like, what is the deal? Why am I still feeling this? Because there, there's a possibility that there's another step that remains. Now, I want to pause right here. This can be, this can be really, uh, this can be difficult to understand, because sometimes the reason why I'm still feeling guilt is because Jesus said that we have an accuser, the devil, Satan, who wants to lie to us and he wants to constantly bring up our past and he wants to constantly be telling us that God couldn't love us and God couldn't forgive us and all those things and, and, and if that's the case, if that's the reason why I'm stuck in sin, then I just need to keep going to God's word. In fact, I need to keep going to God's word regardless. Keep going to God's word. I need to read God's word as Carrie told us last week. I need to write it. I need to repeat it. But you know, sometimes, sometimes that's not the issue. Sometimes there's another possibility, and this is what we have as our fourth point this morning. The fourth point is that maybe to get unstuck, I need to make things right. Now this is not isolated. First, you need to recognize that your sin is serious. You need to ask God to remove your sin. You need to receive God's forgiveness. But there are some things that we have done that now that we've dealt with the vertical, our relationship with God the Father, we now need to deal with the horizontal, and that is dealing with the issues of the people that we have hurt. And we make the mistake when we over spiritualize the way that we've hurt people and say, Well, I've asked God to forgive me. I'm clean. I'm good. And we don't deal with the hurt of the people around us. David says this in Psalm 51, verse 17. He says, the sacrifice you desire is a broken spirit. You will not reject a broken and, what's the next word? Repentant heart, O oh God. You will not reject a broken and repentant heart, O oh God. Repentance is is a word that we use. In fact, this was a big word that Jesus used. In the New Testament, we read in Mark chapter 1, verse 15, at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, Jesus said, the time promised by God has come at last. The kingdom of God is near. Repent of your sins and believe the good news. Here's, Here's the deal of repentance. Repentance literally means a changing of mind. It's changing how I view God, it's changing how I view myself, it's changing how I view others, but it's not just a changing of my mind, it's a changing of my mind that leads to a changing of my actions. As my thoughts are changed regarding God and myself and others, I change how I'm acting toward God and how I'm acting toward myself and how I'm acting toward others. You hear what Jesus is saying? Repentance, Repentance literally, it's not just saying I'm sorry. Repentance is changing. It is making things right. Probably the the best illustration of this that I can think of is actually an interaction that Jesus has at one time with, with a guy named Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus was a wee little man. And a wee little man was he. Some of you have heard this before. If you have no idea what I'm talking about right now, that's quite okay. A lot of us still have PTSD from Sunday school and VBS and all that, all of that, and so we know all the rhyming songs and all that that goes with it. Zacchaeus was a tax collector. And you know what? Being a tax collector in and of itself is not a bad thing. In our first service, we had Kim Foreman here. She's Sandusky County's treasurer, and she's the person who we give all of our taxes to. Well, she collects it, but... Kim's a great person. She's a woman of integrity. I'm so glad that she's in that office. Back then, there was this thing about being a tax collector. Remember, the Israelites were under the thumb, under the ruling oppression of the Roman Empire. And tax collectors, the Roman Empire would come in and they would, they would seek out, they would look for Jewish individuals who would be willing to go to their neighbors because these people knew what people really owed and they would go to their neighbors and they would collect taxes on behalf of the Roman Empire, but they were given a right and a privilege. This was actually codified and it was legal for them to do this. On top of collecting what was due to Roman Empire, they could also collect a little extra for themselves. And sometimes this got flat out out of hand. So uh, these guys would become incredibly wealthy and they were incredibly despised by their fellow Jews. To the point where they would have the nicest house in the community, but it was always in the outskirts of the community. They had no friends, people didn't respect them, people loathed tax collectors. So Jesus meets this through a whole series of events we don't have time to get into. Jesus meets this guy named Zacchaeus, and Zacchaeus repents. Zacchaeus asked Jesus to forgive him of his sins, and in the midst of his repentance, Zacchaeus says this, this is crazy, in Luke chapter 19, verse eight, Zacchaeus says, listen to this, I will give half my wealth to the poor, Lord, and if I have cheated people on their taxes, and I can imagine there was a big snickering in the crowd at that point, like if, whatever, if I have cheated people on their taxes, I will give them back four times as much, And at this, Jesus paused and he said, Zacchaeus, you don't need to do that. You've already asked me for my forgiveness and I've already given you forgiveness and you've received my grace and so we're good to go, bro. You're looking at me because maybe you don't know the story. Jesus didn't say that. He didn't say that at all. In fact, what he said next was, he said in verse 9, Jesus responded, this is a statement in response to what Zacchaeus had just said, is that Jesus says, salvation has come to this home today, for this man has, what's the word there? Okay, oh, yeah, let, me, let me say this again. Salvation has come to this home today, for this man has what? This man has shown, he has demonstrated, he has, he has not just asked me to forgive him of his sins, he hasn't just asked me you know, for repentance and received my grace, he has shown himself to be a true son of Abraham because of his willingness to make things right. So let's go back to the example of David. David has sinned against Uriah and he sinned against Bathsheba. How in the world is he going to make things right? Uriah's already dead. Bathsheba, he's already married her. Like, to make things right, would you now divorce this widow that you married? Like, like what, what, do you, what do you do now to make things? I mean, this is messy and it's complicated. And for some of you, you're sitting here and the guilt that you feel that you're stuck in is messy and it's complicated. You go, Ken, I don't know how I could make this right. For most of us, making things right is as simple as saying, you know what? What I did was wrong and I'm sorry would you forgive me? For some of you, it's not a big deal. Sometimes it's the accumulation of little deals. Sometimes it's the, honey, I shouldn't have talked to you that way. That was rude and the words that I used were totally out of hand. I was wrong, will you forgive me? See, that requires humility. So what's David gonna do? How, how is David going to make things right? I think he made things right. I think his attempt, because it's messy and it's difficult, how do you make things right in this situation? I think part of his attempt to make things right is this psalm that we're actually reading in Psalm 51. See, think about this. He could have written these words down in his journal, and then he could have ripped the page out of his journal and folded it up and put it in the furthest back part of his nightstand, you know, drawer drawer. So that he knew where it was and nobody else knew where it was. He could have written these words down and then taken it out of his journal and wadded it up and thrown it in the fire. David does something so counterintuitive, something that nobody in this room would do if you were in the position, if you had the wealth, if you had the reputation, if you had the power and the responsibilities of David. I don't think anybody in this room would do this. I wouldn't have done this. David does something that absolutely shocks me. He writes this out and then he takes it to the national choir director and he says, hey, I'd like the choir to sing this song. And just in case people don't realize the context of this song, let's put a header at the top of it. And in all of your translations, no matter if you have the King James Version or you have the ESV or NLT or whatever translation, right before verse one, you will see in your Bible in Psalm 51, here's a header. It says, For the choir director... A psalm of David regarding the time Nathan the prophet came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. What? (laughs) Why in the world would you do this? David is trying to make things right. He's trying to show humility. He's trying to say what I did was wrong and I, I can't do anything for Uriah. I'm going to love Bathsheba. You know, this child that Bathsheba was pregnant with died. Not too long after that, she got pregnant again. And the child she gave birth to this time, his name was Solomon. And Solomon would actually be the one who would become king after David died. David David tried to make things right. He couldn't go back and change his actions, but this psalm reveals his repentance and his his desire to not conceal the matter, but to make things right as much as he can. Now listen, sometimes when you're trying to make things right, it can get messy. I put in your notes, and I'm just gonna read these rapid fire. Here's some things to think about. Ask God to reveal who you need to make things right with. You don't need to go digging for a person, okay? I'm not saying you need to you know, get in a trance and get hypnotized and go back to your childhood. If you can't think of anybody and you're legitimately asking the Holy Spirit to shine his searchlight in your life, then, then maybe you're good to go. But my feeling is, if you ask God to show you somebody that you need to make r- things right with, to God that's an open invitation. And if there's somebody in your life, he will make it clear. Second bullet point, ask God for discernment to know how to make things right. This, is, this can get tricky. How do you make things right? Sometimes it's not a matter of just prancing right back into somebody's life, especially if you created a whole tsunami of destruction in their lives. It might not be the most wise thing to just show up unannounced at the door. Here I am. <laughs> so you need to get some discernment about how do you make things right. This might involve the third bullet point. Seek the advice of a Christian man or woman that you trust. Because you need some prudence and discernment about the setting, about how you would speak this. Maybe, maybe there's situations where really, you know what, it was so far in the back and, and it really is a situation that you just need to seek God's forgiveness and receive his forgiveness and move on. And then finally, when seeking forgiveness from a person you've hurt, appeal for their forgiveness but don't demand it. Give them time. Chances are they may struggle. And listen, if you are someone who has hurt another person, you need to respect the fact that they need a season to be able to struggle. You need to respect that. You can't demand anything in that place. You do what you can do to make it right and then you back up. So as we close, I had this image in my mind. I just imagined David, just just pretend with me this isn't in scripture. You don't have to agree with me on this. It's just my theory. I imagine David now years after this, decades after this, David is now an old man, maybe he's months from dying. Maybe his eyesight is fading, his hearing is faded, and he goes into the congregation, maybe a congregation like this, and in the crowd his family members and friends in the congregation are people that he doesn't know, perfect strangers. He takes his seat in the front because he's the king of Israel. The choir comes up on the platform and the musicians start their instruments. And the choir begins to sing this song and by now it's become a beloved moving anthem of cleansing and forgiveness. I can imagine David standing to his feet and raising his hands with tears coming down his face as he thinks about his sin and thinks about the incredible grace of God. That while it is free to him, is the most expensive gift that has ever been purchased. I think it's an example for all of us. So I'm gonna invite you to close your eyes and bow your heads where you're at. As we get ready to close, let let me ask you this question. Have you received the forgiveness of Jesus? Have you, maybe you've been deeply religious, maybe you've attended church. I had a great conversation with a, with a man after the first service, and he goes, you know, I came to Journey today because I had to hear this message. Very religious man, he goes, but I've never humbled myself and acknowledged that I've sinned against God and that I need his forgiveness in my life. Maybe you're here, and that's you. I'm not gonna embarrass you. I'm not gonna have you stand or come to the front. In fact, that's why I ask everyone to close their eyes because I don't wanna embarrass anybody. We believe that we publicly confess through baptism, But if that's you and you say, Ken, I need the forgiveness of Jesus in my life. I've never asked Jesus to forgive me. I've never asked him to be the master and leader of my life. Or maybe I've done that in the past, but Jesus hasn't been leading my life. I've been been going in my own direction for a long time. If that's you, would you just raise your hand? I would love to pray with you this morning. Yeah, yeah. Raise it high and I'll, I'll look to you. Anybody else? Yeah, I see you there too. Anybody else? Yeah. After you've raised your hand, you can lower it if I have acknowledge you. Anybody else? I want to make sure that I get to pray with you. Anybody else? Yeah, I see you too. You can lower your hand too. Yeah, who else? Listen, those of you who raised your hand, I want you to know God is His heart is so full right now. He's been waiting for you to turn to Him. He loves you so much. He doesn't want you stuck in your shame. He doesn't want you stuck in guilt and in sin. I'm gonna ask this whole congregation, would you pray with me, and especially those of you who raised your hands. You you pray as this this is for you, but let's all pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for Jesus. Thank you that He died on the cross so that my sins can be forgiven. That he was resurrected from the grave to prove his authority. Lead me. Show me how to follow you. I want you to be my master. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Now with your eyes closed I just want to ask and I'm not going to ask for any show of hands but I just want you to take a moment if you still feel stuck in guilt you've prayed a hundred times can I just ask you the simple question who do you need to make things right with? How are you going to do it? If it's really messy, who are you going to invite into the process, a respected, godly man or woman who can help you navigate these issues? When are you going to do it? Do you need to make a phone call? When are you going to do it? Father, help us. We don't want to be stuck in guilt. We don't want to be stuck in sin, We want to receive your grace and the life that you have for us. We want to walk in your ways. We want to walk in your freedom. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, we're about to dismiss, but I want to, for a number of you raise your hands, and can I just say, this is why we exist as a church. We want to see lives change. We want to see people brought into the kingdom of God. And so if you raised your hand, know that we are for you. We are cheering for you. In fact, we have prayer partners that are coming right now. And at the end of the service, as everybody else is leaving, we would love for you to come forward and just say, hey, I raised my hand. Would you pray for me? Or maybe you're here and you just, you need healing in your body or you need God to intervene in a situation in your life. You're already a follower of Jesus, but you just need prayer. As our prayer partners are coming, whoever our prayer partners are, go ahead and come on up. If it's not your week, maybe just come on up anyhow. I appreciate you. I'll I'll, uh, send you a gold sticker later on. gold star sticker. Thank you, guys, for helping me out with that. As everybody else is leaving, man, come to them. Get prayer. A couple other things. I mentioned the connection card at the beginning of the service, especially if you just raised your hand, if you're starting a relationship with Jesus. At the bottom of the connection card says, My next step check that box that says I'm starting a relationship with Jesus, or maybe for you, you're reaffirming a relationship with Jesus, and then as you're leaving, we got some great individuals back there with the white buckets, stick those connection cards back in there. If if you're growing in your relationship with Jesus, I I personally lead a class on Thursday nights called the Grow Class. an hour long sometimes we go a little over an hour and i'd love for you to come this thursday at 6 30 p.m love for you to be a part of that whether whether you've just become a follower of jesus or maybe you've been following jesus for a long time but you just feel stuck we want to help you grow in that and then finally want to make sure you take advantage of these prayer partners they're up here because they would love to pray with you they're not just up here because they want to hear your dirty laundry they really believe that god can make a difference in your life would you stand your feet This week, may you receive the grace of God. And if you need to take care of something in the horizontal, may you make things right with the people that you've hurt. God bless you guys. We'll see you later.